Ekiolo koe te tifana, ka mea atu ki a koe te mea o koe tau whakarongo i tēnei wā. Yes, guys, it's um, The Invisible Sensei, and I've got a very special Invisible Sensei podcast, hence the little more Māori that I'm speaking. Um, one of the cool things about being involved in martial arts, and one of the, I think one of the most rewarding aspects of it is the people that you get to meet who are walking similar paths. Um, and very much unlike everyday life, a lot of times in the martial arts, you're focusing on what makes you the same. Even if you're not doing the same style, perhaps different teachers, countries and cultures, I think when you sit down and you start talking to people about what makes us the same in our love of the arts, uh, boundaries tend to fall away. So my guest today is Pedro Bernardi Sensei. Now, I was very lucky to begin corresponding with Sensei, golly gosh, it must be two years ago, I was in America and I'd put up some tentative videos on my little Facebook page and Sensei, was, it was always very positive and then we eventually connected up and we've been able to do some training through this wonderful internet thing that all the kids that all the kids are using. But I wanted to grab Sensei um, and do a little bit of an interview with him because I think that his walk in karate is, is quite unique and certainly his take on karate and his openness in this wonderful, crazy world of karate and martial arts and everything that entails, it's quite, it's quite um, a rare thing. Anyway, Sensei, I'm just going to um, take, if you take yourself off mute, we will begin this wonderful um, journey together. <clears throat> and uh, so Sensei is, uh, has a dojo and some fantastic students. Is it in California, Sensei? Yes, Northern California, that's correct. In Northern California. And, I, well, and through the magic of the internet, I'm sitting here in Aotearoa, also known as New Zealand. On the other side of the world, almost directly opposite from Sensei, it's, I think it's um, the evening hours there. So Sensei, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your busy schedule, to, especially in the holiday period, um, to um, share yourself with us. Well, it's my great pleasure and honour. Thank you so much for having me. That's no, fantastic. Now, also Sensei, probably, probably for the listeners too, we've got a little bit of a time lag. Um, here, so at certain times there will be a little bit of a, a little bit of lag. So you hope you can bear with me, um, Sensei. If we can jump straight into it, I just want to again thank you, profusely, and also talk about what my experiences have been in terms of our interactions. Now we met online, which sounds very very dodgy, <laughs> but um, I think one of the things that most that's most impressed me in the last couple of years, Sensei, and getting to know you in this online format is the depth of your karate, um, your experience, and, and I guess also the duration you've trained with some incredible people, um, a couple of people we have in common. Um, you've travelled extensively and you've worked in a number of areas, um, and particularly motivation, training, and all of that sort of stuff, which is a perfect accompaniment to karate. And I want the theme of this podcast to be the why but I guess it's important to start with a little bit of what what led you to start which Bruce Lee movie did you watch Sensei that led you there and um, <clears throat> no what led you to Karate and Sensei and, and how did you start I think you've, you've shared a little bit with me but I'm really intrigued to hear of the the beginning of the of the journey well it, it's very uh, common 
in Major Bruce Lee, and that, in fact, was my first real influence in the martial arts. And that was uh, in 1966. I was 13 years old, and I saw an advertisement in the newspaper for a TV show that was coming on soon called The Green Hornet. And what caught my attention was the photograph of uh, a young oriental-looking gentleman who was doing a, a rather unique pose that I'd never seen before. It looked like he was fighting someone, but very fiercely and very uniquely. And so when the show finally came on, I remember, you know, like it was yesterday, standing in front of the TV and commanding every one of my siblings to not touch the dial. I had to watch this show. So from there, I started uh, learning as much as I could from whatever was available with martial arts. It didn't matter where it came from. I really didn't know much about martial arts, but I wanted to be Bruce Lee and, and just like him. Mm. I think it's a real common... Uh, this seems to be with, all, every, with, everyone, with everyone in the martial arts... With every, with oh, sorry, Sensei, with everyone in the martial arts, it seems to be Bruce Lee seems to be a common denominator. So, and watching Bruce Lee and seeing these weird weird poses and these strange dances that these people do, what was your introduction to your to training? Well, it had to be with the fact that uh, I saw this young man who was rather small in stature being able to command his body in a way that I'd never seen anybody do before. And in my growing up, you know, we were, we were, we were brought up, um, uh, you know, what most people might regard as a you know, low, uh, low income family, um, Puerto Ricans in, in, a, in a new place where Puerto Ricans at the time weren't necessarily uh, looked upon great, greatly. And so there were times when uh, we were scared and we felt we had to protect ourselves or at least feel like we were safer in some way. And that became an outlet for me to be able to use my own body the, the same way that I saw him do his. And from there, it just sprang into understanding more about the philosophy and the cultures of those arts. And I became a, a student as much as I could be uh, of whatever martial arts uh, I could get in any format at all. Mm. Now, I know, you, well, of course, since you've, you've got a sort of a storied, what's the word? You've got an incredible pedigree, actually, through Kubador and Karate and all the other arts that you've exposed yourself to. In those formative days... What was your first experience going into a dojo, <clears throat> and when did you when did you kind of get the fever? Well, in 1967, I saw a karate demonstration put on in my high school by Sensei George Dillman, who had basically the only real karate dojo that I was aware of in my hometown of Reading, Pennsylvania. That's where he had his home base at the time, and he put on a show in our high school that um, was a living. Bruce Lee, as far as I'm concerned, I would just feel a few feet away from him and his students as they were doing these fantastic uh, exhibitions with their with their body, and breaking boards and doing kata, all kinds of things that I later became more familiar with, obviously, but he was my real first exposure in life, and uh, I was not able to train with him at the time, there was no money, no opportunity for, him, for, for me to attend school, but uh, in 1973, I turned 20 years old, and that was the same year that Bruce Lee passed away. And I remember that all my training up to that point had been from books and from anybody who had studied um, Count Dante in the street and could teach me Denmark. I would learn from everybody and anybody. And generally it was the people that could, uh, you know, uh, put me on the ground and keep me there. Those are the people that were my teachers. But in 73, I made the decision after Bruce died that uh, I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life learning that way. I wanted to do formal training. So I went to Sensei uh, George Dillman. I was able to afford the $15 a month. And fifteen dollars for my first gi, and I, I began then. 
And it's interesting you bring up George Stillman, Sensei. Um, <clears throat> now, as we know, kind of in, 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 I guess, the 80s and 90s, and I guess to a degree in the 70s, George Stillman was famous for training with Muhammad Ali and wrestling Panthers and all those sort of things. And I suppose George Stillman has visited my country, New Zealand, and done a number of seminars. So you having trained with him, it would probably be good to ask, you know, away from all the hype, away from, I guess, all the um, differing views about pressure points and so on and tute and, and all that sort of stuff, what was the substance of the training for you? What drew you there after your initial, well, what kept you there after your initial uh, introduction? Well, Sensei Dillman had a great reputation at the time for being a, a very strong uh, tournament competitor. Uh, he had been a former amateur boxer. Uh, he knew what he uh, what he knew. He was very good at it. Yeah. Uh, he had a tremendous flexibility. He could do the full splits just standing up after a conversation uh, one day in his office. We were getting ready for a demonstration that he was planning to do. He just got up and walked out in front of the desk and just did full splits. Uh, he was just an incredible martial artist at that time, and he had a great group of students uh, some which I, I had known through high school um, and others that I got to know as mentors at the time mm. that uh, guided me along in that really part of my of my martial arts career in a, in a very caring way. And so he was a tremendous influence in the beginning of my career. And it's unfortunate, uh, as you know, that he took a different route. Mm. But I will always be indebted him for getting me started. Mm. So Sensei, if you could... <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, if you could put your finger on maybe three qualities that training with Mr. Dillman instilled in you and that you've carried through, what would those be? Let's see, three. One would be his passion for the arts. Uh, another would be his great conditioning. At the time, he was in great shape. Uh, and he was a good teacher. I, I saw some qualities in him that right away I took to wanting to do and, and use on my own. And I remember after just a few months of training with him, he asked me to introduce some basic lessons to a couple of new students. And uh, his dojo at the time was an office building, and there were several floors associated with his with his dojo. And I was downstairs in one of the rooms, and I remember that uh, I was in there for what I thought was a few minutes, and uh, with these two or three new students teaching the, the few things that I knew as a yellow belt. And Sensei Dilma came down and said, "What are you still doing here? I thought you were gone." It had been more than a couple of hours, and I just got carried away with the fact that I wanted to be a teacher in many ways that I saw him being a teacher. Mm. Um, you know, it's interesting, too, that sometimes teachers, there are teachers, I think, that are put before us that teach us how to do things, and there are things, there are teachers that are put before us to teach us how not to do things. Um, yeah, and, and I guess in later years, I mean, people have, I, I've had some dealings with um, pressure point experts and so on and so forth. I suppose that my take on it is that, you know, we're all doing, we're all different branches on the same tree. And, you know, sh surely on in YouTube footage and so on and all that sort of sensationalised stuff, um, there's something in that for everyone. So moving from Dilman Sensei, what was your next, what was your next port of call after that Sensei? Well, in 1974, uh, late 74, early 75, I moved to Chicago, Illinois, uh, and uh, I started training in a uh, shuri, shuri Roo style um, 
You know, it's an interesting thing too, Sensei. For me, I suppose, and for those who, for those people who listen to uh, the podcast in the Asian Pacific area, a lot of the people that you're talking about actually referring to are people who've only seen an inside Kung Fu or Karate Illustrated, those sort of things. Uh, so when you talk about Robert Trieste and all those sort of things, you know, there's certainly people, big names, but um, people that I've never met, but certainly in a weird kind of way been influenced by because when in, in New Zealand I know and perhaps in Australia you know getting good karate magazines um, you know they were like hen's teeth and you know you read about all these people so it's really interesting you talk about that now from there since you moved to so you moved so you were in LA you'd been this Puerto Rican kid who needed to know how to use his hands and feet it was, it was good to Always a good thing. It's interesting you say that too, Sensei, because I think a lot of us, um, as a Samoan Māori boy, you have to know how to use your... Have to have to know a trick or two to get out of a, a few sticky situations. So when did you start taking students? When did you... When did when were you put in front of a class? Well, in 1991, I moved to uh, Northern California, where I live today. And uh, I hooked up with uh, a man who was to be my... Uh, real uh, first mentor and allowing me to be able to understand martial arts in a way that I hadn't seen before. And that, that is uh, Sensei Jim Sylvan. And I say that because uh, Sensei Sylvan is younger than I am, but much more experienced. And he, he opened up the world to me to uh, small circuit jiu-jitsu and Okinawan masters I had not heard about before, like uh, uh, Katsuhiko Shinzato Sensei as an example. Great, great people, all great mentors, Oshiro Toshihiro Sensei is another. But uh, in 1991, I began to train with Sensei Sylvan. Uh, very charismatic, uh, very uh, low-key, but 
But as Professor Jay once introduced him as, he says, Miss Sylvan Sensei is uh, like Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, he uh, walks softly but carries a big stick or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was very fortunate to, to train with Sensei Sylvan for many years after that. Uh, we're still great friends. He's like a brother to me. Uh, and in, in 1997, I decided that um, I would open up a dojo of my own. I was still not working as a full-time uh, personal trainer or fitness coach and mentor as I am today. I was still working in information technologies at that time. But I wanted to train on my own, and I bought a home in 97 in, in, in Northern California and, and uh, created a dojo with the help of my students in my garage. And that became where I started teaching. Mm. And uh, that's the very first uh, uh, entrance into my teaching experience. It's interesting too. When we so sensei, when you talk about your 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 turning your your garage or garage, you say in in the American speak, um, into a dojo. Uh, if you're listening to this, when you when I think of dojo, and I think of garage, those two things are completely separate. So when sensei says he turned his garage into a dojo, it may be not exactly what you're thinking. It's almost like there used to be. When I've seen, when I've seen, when I've seen inside it, it's like, well, there might have been used to been, they might have, have used to park cars in the dojo. It's a beautiful dojo, and it, and it has a story as well. Since a, a lot of your students have contributed, and you've worked really hard to create that. What's so? Where did well, what? How did the dojo come about? And what's a little bit of the background for for your for the um, Bernardi Hombu dojo? Well, first of all, the, the dojo was built uh, primarily by my students over the years. And I've had many students uh, in many different industries. My, the first uh, student of mine who contributed heavily to the building of the dojo uh, is a general contractor. He no longer trains with me, but at the time, uh, he and his, his daughters all trained with me. And it seemed like every Monday he would show up in his pickup truck and, and deliver some lighting or some mirrors, some uh, carpets he had taken wow. from someone's house and decided it'll fit here. And it became the dojo. And over the, over the years, we've just added more carpeting to the floors and, and more of the bathroom uh, mirrors on the walls. And, uh, and then later on, we started getting other students, uh, contractors, architectures, architects, um, people who actually engineer things for me. Mm. And so they came and they raised the ceiling, literally. <laughs> uh, they put better flooring, better lighting, better walls, insulation. Mm. <laughs> what you see today is the result of all that great work and, and, and big heart. So uh, I, I treasure that this place, and, and what, what I do is try to keep it clean and keep it open for the people that uh, deserve to, to use it. And with the help of my wife and uh, the people that train here, it's going really well. Well, you know, it's it's interesting thing too, Sensei, because um, uh, at my humble dojo, um, there's a there's a story to every nail on the wall and every lick of paint and every mucky water that was haphazardly put in. And uh, I've been lucky enough to virtually train uh, in the in in your dojo, and it just looks fantastic. And it's got a, even from uh, across the other side of the world, you can feel the kind of the spirit that goes on. But I think, you know, that's that's part and parcel of the energy that people bring in and leave leave in the walls. Now I want to touch on something, if I may, Sensei. You you uh, work as a professional. If you see Bernardi Sensei, and I'll put a link to the Dojo Facebook page um, to Bernardi's um, Dojo over there in California uh, in the description. Bernardi Sensei is kind of, you know, like, he's got abs and all those sort of wonderful things that, you know, I dream of having. But um, 
Sensei, with working in that area as a motivator and a trainer, how does that, how does the life lessons you've accrued from a life in karate and in the martial arts, how do those things transfer across, if they do at all? Well, they, they do very much so. Um, part, part of my history in the martial arts is that, I, as I mentioned earlier, very early on in my life, it, I used it as a foundation to be able to build confidence and, and physical and spiritual strength in, in, in ways that you know, no religion, no, no clergyman ever helped me with. And, uh, and I've been able to use it uh, to uh, accomplish goals that I've had in my business career and also to get over uh, personal loss. As, as you know, I, I lost our youngest daughter, mm. uh, Christina, uh, to cancer in, in the year 2000 and uh, part of what I do today as a fitness mentor and, and coach people and, and uh, martial arts instructor and student is based on being able to build a legacy that, that my, my daughter as we call her Machi mm. Machi never had the opportunity she passed at the age of 13 and so she was one of my students and mm. uh, was awarded a black belt by my, my teacher Jim Sullivan uh, just before she passed away Mm. And so my life is uh, very much dedicated towards my family, my friends, and the memory and legacy of, of Machi. Mm. And you and you carry that well, Sensei. You know, it's a, a interesting thing too. You know, and thank you for sharing that. I know that's a extremely personal um, personal experience. And and I remember when we first started to communicate and had some some virtual face to face, and you talked about that and just your passion and desire to leave a legacy and to make sure that you lived every day to the fullest. And that's reflected a lot for me and just your general attitude, but also how you approach your students. Um, a little while ago, you had two students uh, who were doing Yudansha gradings. And um, I know Igor <coughs> um, quite well. And um, uh, and sorry, what was the other gentleman's name, Sensei? That was Bob Jenkins. Bob Jenkins. I keep calling him new Bob. Wrong Bob. Wrong Bob. Um, and I had an opportunity to sit down, thank you so much for the link, and watch the watch the grading from where to go. It was a fantastic a fantastic grading. There were some fantastic martial artists there, not all of whom were karate. There was Aikido and different styles. It was senior yudancha from these from this uh, from different styles. It was really inspirational watching it. And you can see the regard that the students have for you. What is it that you try to instill, Sensei? Is it about bringing things that you see uh, in them out? Is it about building on um, their values? Is it what is it that you believe or that you attempt as a as a Sensei to create? Well, you know, a lot of it comes from uh, my own personal view of the martial arts. Uh, that every student obviously is an individual, and uh, the, the the type of class that we that we conduct uh, is quite often um, based on what that person or, or people can do in that in that particular setting. And that's why I like smaller classes. Although I do have large classes of children uh, wherever I teach it uh, at my other dojo, but uh, I, it's it's the ability to be able to identify and uh, and keep growing people in a way that they may not even realize they need to go. And I like that phrase that uh, people often use with teachers that, uh, uh, you know, I don't teach you what you want, I teach you what you need. Mm -hmm. And it keeps me on my toes also, always trying to understand more and, and be able to learn from teachers, mm -hmm. much like yourself and other people I, I regard as friends and mentors and not in the arts. That I always watch to see what people do to be able to better further their own abilities mm -hmm. and, their, and their teaching <clears throat> uh, skills mm -hmm. as well. 
So I would say that it's just being able to understand my students, make them part of the family, which they become very quickly, typically, mm. and we just grow together. Mm. So Sensei, with your um, sort of vast experience, you've trained with, with some pretty amazing Sensei, um, Wally J to name, and uh, Sensei Wally J, I was lucky enough to go to a couple of seminars uh, when I was living in Hawaii um, a few years back, and I was friends, very cl- good friends with his nephew, who was kind enough to take me around. Um, I don't know if "kind" is the right word. Um, Mr. J then tend to um, then tended to twist, rip, and um, put me in all sorts of ridiculous positions. Sometimes just using a finger. Um, who for you? Uh, who are you a fan of in the martial arts sense? I mean, you've trained with so many people. Who do you kind of get excited by? And, and, and well, let me put it this another way. Who have you trained with that excites you and who would you like to train with with time, space, money not being an object? Well, that's a, that's a heavy question. Well, you know, in preparation for our, for our discussion, I wrote down uh, the names of people that uh, I've studied with directly and people who I regard as mentors. Uh, and I, I list Professor Wally J as the very top of that list of mentors. I've trained with him before, and I was able to get to know him very well as a result of my relationship with, with Sensei Jim Silver. He and Professor J were very, very close and traveled the world together for, for several years. Um, but, uh, but I would say that he, he would be one of the first people that I would name if someone say, said, who's I to train with today and forever? Mm. Uh, he had that kind of personality that uh, showed uh, big heart, but if you shook his hand <laughs> or stuck your finger out, yes, you're right, you get the same result. <laughs> but you're just a kind-hearted individual and so knowledgeable and always that, that uh, eternal student mm. that uh, the best mentors and teachers that I've had also amplify. And that's what I want to be. I want to be for the forever student. Mm. So uh, Jim Silverman would, would be another person on that list. Uh, he's not able to teach any longer. He's had some serious health issues in the last few years. But uh, he's, a, he's an incredible individual very very humble and extremely knowledgeable mm-hmm. he was doing things um you know 25 years ago when i when i met him that we do today in terms of interval training and understanding um what uh, the nuances and biomechanics and martial arts mm-hmm. he knew all that before i even heard of it mm-hmm. and he was already teaching it in a way that uh, is still effective today mm-hmm. um and then since auto sensei is just a modern day renaissance man in okinawa mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, perfect English, having, having uh, taught English linguistics and the U.S. Red Cues and, mm. you know, taught at Stanford and um, all, all, all over the world. Just an incredible human being as mm. well as a martial artist of the highest caliber. Mm. So if I had to pick only three, I'd, I'd say those are probably the top of, of the list. Mm. Oh, gosh, I mean, you've got so many to choose from, Sensei. Let me ask you this. Um, with having a wife, a lovely wife who is Okinawan and, and experiencing that culture, I suppose, to a greater degree than probably your, certainly than your average tourist. Um, certainly a lot of people who go to Okinawa, they spend time practicing karate, going to the dojo, eating at the izakaya, going to the dojo bar, hopping on a jet and going home. What is it about the Okinawan culture, um, quite apart from karate, or actually a part of karate, that that it's, that uh, you admire or that are kind of the qualities that you think a lot of people don't know or what are the things that people miss about the Okinawan people uh, and, and their culture? Well, what attracted me initially to the Okinawan culture was what I saw in Los Angeles in, in the Okinawan community that I was living in at the time. 
uh, they took me in, um, like a, like one of their own children, like my own brothers, uh, from almost the very beginning. And all I had to do was show an interest in, in the martial arts. That's all I really knew about Okinawa at all. Was, uh, karate, that's where karate came from. Uh, I didn't know much about different styles or different individuals, but they introduced me to that culture. Mm. And so much so that, um, I, I became part of a, uh, an entertainment group, for lack of a better term, that Kimo Sensei, Kimo Wall Sensei, uh, helped organize mm. with the Okinawa uh, Club in Los Angeles. And we would travel literally across the country and, and do the shows in Okinawa communities where uh, Kimo Sensei and I, and maybe one or two of other students at the time, would come out and uh, do karate and koboto demonstrations, and, and then followed by dancers and, and singers mm. and musicians, all displaying Okinawa culture. So that's one thing, that the fact that they are so willing to bring you into their hearts and into their homes. Uh, and then the fact that uh, there's some peaceful people. Um, they, they've suffered much, as you know, uh, in their history. And uh, it's amazing to me that uh, they, they still love people. They still love people to come to Okinawa and understand them and to bring a part of what they they consider to be um, very important in their lives, and, and that is to live a, a long, healthy, prosperous life and, and, and prosper in a way that, I think it's been meant to help other people become uh, better. Um, it's just one of those traits. I, I've not seen them in other cultures. Not probably they're there. Mm. But the Okinawans just opened up to me in a way that uh, you know, no other culture had uh, mm. before then. Here, so here's a, another question, Sensei. <clears throat> what from your background, what from your culture, uh, that young Puerto Rican boy having to learn to put up his dukes, um, what qualities do you bring from your culture your upbringing and um i guess your experiences what what do you bring from your culture to your karate to your interactions with students um and all these different things because i'm imagining that for them to take you in as they did they must have recognized the kindred spirit i believe you're right yeah they, they saw that you know, I, I i was intensive i was listening I really wanted to learn about them. I wasn't trying to show anything that I could do because I really couldn't do much anyway. Um, but I think I brought the fact that, uh, you know, I, well, Latins in general, as you probably know, are, you know, very affectionate. Uh, we love people. We love to hug. Uh, Okinawans don't necessarily like to hug, but they accepted me in that, in that fashion quite often. Uh, but they just see a sincerity in, in the way that I, I, I feel their sincerity. It just comes out in, both, in all of us around us. And uh, probably that, from my, from my background, um, it's the most important thing to me uh, to understand that an open heart will bring other open hearts around you. Mm. And so uh, I, I think if I were to make it uh, one thing, it would be just that the aspect of our culture that just brings mm. us uh, more smiles to people. Mm. You know, you know, I think it's the same thing with Polynesian culture too, Sensei. Um, Polynesian culture tends to have very similar values. Um, there tends to be a lot of eating, a lot of food. Everything's around food. Um, and drinking to some extent. I don't drink, but you know, but um, but my family makes it more than makes up for it. Um, so eating together, drinking together, laughing together, and crying together, I guess, are sort of some of the things that our cultures and indigenous cultures have in common. Now, Senza, if I can turn, please, to now... So you've been training, and I, I hesitate to say this, but I say it with great respect, longer than I've been alive... <laughs> which is kind of awe-inspiring because I've been alive for 370 years, as you know, Sensei. Um, <laughs> um, what is it that keeps you going? What is it? I mean, I'm imagining 
with your training, you started in large classes with a lot of different students, with a lot of people. And over the years, you've had really close brothers and brothers and sisters in the arts that have kind of fallen away. After all this time, after the battles, I mean, after the loss of your daughter, I mean, things that would, I mean, tend to derail the train, so to speak. What keeps you getting in your gear every day? What keeps you uh, on the path? Well, uh, you know, someone asked me that recently, and I had to rethink it, though, because it's, 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 for me, it's like, you know, brushing my teeth in the morning, just like you. I, I know you brush your teeth and you watch your, your latest martial arts video. <laughs> I'm the same way. Uh, but I, I have to say, at this point in my life, it's, it's also related to the fact that I meet people every day, of all kinds of people, all ages, all levels of conditioning, deconditioning in, in the physical sense, that need um, someone that they can look up to. Mm. And I say that in as humble a way as I can, uh, because really all I'm trying to do is just be as good as I can be. She's so like, I'm going to break in there and say, you've got abs, so I'm already looking up to you. <laughs> I still drink my Sierra beer too, so I, you know I have to work for it. Uh, but I'm very fortunate. I think good genes help. Uh, I'll be 67 on my next birthday, and I don't feel that way at that age at all. Not at all. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, you know I have that responsibility that I mentioned earlier. And when I meet people, I want them to know that um, I really do walk the walk, mm. uh, and I, I don't want to be to be phony. Mm. Um, and people sometimes will, will meet me for the first time, and they'll say things like, uh, "Well, you look just like your picture on the internet." Mm. And they seem I, they seem surprised that I would be. Uh, but that's just the way it is. So, uh, you know, for me, it, it, I, well, I have my gear on or not, as you know, you, know, you can train any day of the, of, the, of, the, of the time of the day and night. And you just pick up a maki you are, you pick up a jishishi, whatever it is you're going to be doing. And we just love it. So I think you understand internally what I'm saying. Sensei, I'm going to ask you a question. And I'm going to make this a standard question. Do you... <laughs> ever find yourself when you're in conversation perhaps on the cell phone or um, uh, or just sort of standing around and there's there's a lamp uh, there's a lamp post or a convenient wall do you treat it like a makiwara? <laughs> not just like a makiwara, but uh, Wally, uh, since professor Wally J used to walk down the street and I, I see this in some of his videos too when he was in Hawaii uh, and, and just try to trip the lamppost. He would do some sort of maneuver with his footwork. <laughs> and he would just take the lamppost down several different ways. And I often do that. <laughs> and and uh, with, with limited, with, with, with various degrees of success? Yes, but I'm, yeah, but I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, like, it's like they said in the Karate movie, Sensei, when, um, when uh, Mr. Miyagi gets asked of how many boards he can break, and he says, well, I've never been attacked by a house, but it's great that you're attacking uh, posts as you walk past. Only when no one's looking. So, Sensei, a little, perhaps a little bit, if we can reflect a little bit on your... On your training, on your karate, on your kobudo, and all the other experiences, um, how has you, how have you? I mean, let's be honest, you're in great shape. Um, how has your training changed? The emphasis of your training with karate, jujitsu, kobudo, all the stuff that you've uh, trained, and how how have you managed to continue training? I mean, from a physical perspective. That's a great question, and I'm, I'm glad you asked it because I, I want to encourage people at any age and gender to be able to do training all their lives as, as you do. Uh, when I was young, just like you, I know a little bit about you and your training, 
we're used to crazy stuff. You know, <laughs> I want to do splits like since they don't. And so every morning I get up and the first thing I do is splits. And I hurt myself quite often, but eventually I was able to do a pretty decent split. But that changed over the years, and and now I have a very bad hip that uh, some some surgeons would like to very much uh, replace. And so I've done this. That is uh, a lot of corrective exercise, so I'm able to hold off on that. But it's changed dramatically over the last few years, especially in the last 20 years that I've been in the, in the wellness industry, because I've gotten a lot more educated on what I can do for myself and for my clients. And so one of the changes I've made, apart from being regarded as a, as a specialist in corrective exercise, because of my preference in that area, is to understand how to move better with more efficiency. And mm-hmm. so I'm always watching for people who move, whether they're new clients walking towards me to meet me for the first time, or people of some considerable skill mm. uh, like dancers and uh, other martial artists obviously mm. uh, and then recently well it's now since 2008 uh i started training in tai chi mm. and uh primarily in chen tai chi although i started for the first two years in young style because my instructors wanted to test me as this karate guy who they thought would never hang around for that long and so they, they maybe do with the same couple of movements for the first six months and then had me compete in, in a tai chi um, old man's division for two years, all kinds of crazy things that I didn't want to do, but uh, I survived. And now for the last uh, maybe nine years, I've been training uh, in the Chen style. I really wanted to learn from them. Mm. And that's changed my whole attitude on being able to uh, keep my body moving in, in a much more uh, efficient and, and healthy way. Mm. Uh, not that my teachers in the past were wrong. It's just that I wasn't listening always, and I just wanted to keep hammering. And uh, now I'm a little smarter. Mm. Well, since they were all, we're, you know, it's funny, in hindsight, we, I think about some of the crazy things that I used to do, which I won't bore our listeners with because this podcast is actually about you. But it's interesting now, I incorporate a lot of, a great deal of core training, Swiss ball, um, a lot of exercise, a lot of stretching, I guess, uh, gymnastica, um, breathing techniques. Um, I was at a gym a little while ago lifting some weights and Prior to doing that, I was on the Swiss ball. I do my, I do Swiss ball religiously. Um, better that than suffer the back pain. And I was look these these young jocks were looking at me like, look at this old guy doing doing Swiss ball. But I mean, for you, Sensei, in terms of your specific training, what are some of the ways in which you utilize your um, your education in terms of the body and so on to aid in your continuing practice how do you uh, do you cross train over the specific exercises or or things that you recommend and do since they maintain your karate yes yes uh, i train every day in some fashion uh like just before I, I started this podcast with you i was going over my tai chi forms and hidden makiwara um someone asked me how often should you exercise and i said how often do you move mm. and obviously you should move every day and so we just have to find the right mix for the, the right solution for that person and then progress it as they get better at it. So I think uh, if I were to, to uh, describe a, a typical day for myself and for the people that I, that I would work with, it would be to move with intention every day. Uh, I don't do a workout unless I, I plan it out first because most of my workouts are here at my home dojo by myself. Mm. And usually after I get home from work, mm. and so um, if if I didn't plan that, I probably wouldn't do very much at all. Mm. Uh, and so I hold myself accountable that way, and I I stress that to other people as well. Get as much education from as many professionals as you can. Understand what's right for you, and do it every day, mm. and change it as you get better at it. Mm. Mm. 
I mean, and I suppose a lot of people who um, have contacted me with this podcast and on my Facebook page talk about, you know, the longevity. And uh, one particular chap couldn't believe that I could actually do uh, Jordan Moshigiri. What he didn't see was the 45 minutes of um, progressive stretching I had to do that to get there. So in terms of your personal training, Sensei, and I think... My experience with most senior practitioners, like yourself, there is a degree of of individual training. There is a degree of solo training. Um, how do you approach? Like you were, you touched on it. You know, the, you're you're approaching your your training. I imagine, and you you write a great deal down and plan it. How do you go about maintaining a daily routine and practicing your karate? Well, sometimes it helps to. Uh add a, a different uh, schedule or goal for every day. So f- for a while, I was doing uh, Tai Chi on uh, on Wednesdays. Wednesday evening, I still do class on Wednesday evening and Saturday mornings. But Wednesday was my stretching day. Mm. Uh, Sunday was my powerlifting day. Mm. Uh, Saturday was my boxing day. So it doesn't always turn out that way, but for a while, that worked very well for me. Mm. Now, uh, it just comes to me. I, I, I have a sense that I want to look at my notes from previous workouts that I, because I, I do uh, chart everything that I do ahead mm. of time and, and then I measure myself up to whether or not I reach those goals for that session. Mm. And that information is like an archive of, uh, of, of treasure for me because I see I hadn't done these particular movements for a while or I, I was really bad this last time or I ran out of time to complete these other things. Mm. So my personal training is uh, really based on how I feel and what I want to do mm. with that particular session. Mm. And that tends to change uh, over the course of, of, of several weeks, oh. several months. Uh, it's it's interesting too that when we talk when we're talking about longevity and so on and so forth, and you know continuing to train on a regular basis. I know for me, um, you you guys who are listening to the podcast can see, but I'm holding up the uh, my my journal to Sensei, which is a beautiful beautiful shade of pink, striking striking shade of pink. Um, so I can't lose it. <laughs> um, so, in diary, in, in keeping a diary, and making notes, and finding your own way, I'm taking for for granted that you're talking about you know finding your own method, you know, and way of that works for you. So, sensei, in terms of how would you describe your karate? How would you describe the physical aspects of your karate in terms of what is it that you teach? at the dojo what what is the the core principles is it the three k's is everyone goes kihon katun kumite do you have your own take are you doing something completely different what how do you structure and teach your dojo uh, well uh, I, I take uh, the approach that uh, martial arts uh, is all-encompassing so i take from whatever i want uh, from pilates from yoga from different martial arts that i've been exposed to um, some that I just practice or, or, or seen uh, very little of, and but they match the uh, the, the core principles that I, that I have. And those principles are based on being able to move naturally, holistically, with as much relaxation and attention as possible. Mm-hmm. And it's not based on any sort of uh, sport-oriented um, curriculum at all. It, it's, uh, it's really based on uh, what can the body do to be healthy and to protect itself in the case that it needs to be able to to turn into a weapon for a few seconds, mm. be able to make an escape um, and then go home. Mm. So uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, the pragmatic approach. I see a lot of great instructors on, on the internet uh, uh, teach 
Chris uh, Denwood in England is, is one of those people that I, I admire a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian Abernathy is another. Mm-hmm. Dan Anderson, another in, in Oregon. These are the people that uh, have gone from you know, a, a lot of different stages in training, and they're point now where I think they're all at the same point that I'm trying to be, which is mm-hmm. uh, make your martial arts, whatever you want to call it, whatever it comes, comes from, uh, as practical and useful as possible in all mm-hmm. aspects of life. And so my our karate classes are typically warm-ups where we do basics as our warm-up. I'm not a big fan of doing a lot of exercises at the beginning of class because that tends to lessen the ability and, and, and strength to be able to do the martial arts training that we're there to do. Um, so we'll do a Tihon, the foundational work, um, and we'll incorporate methods from Tai Chi and from uh, Pilates for alignment. Um, whatever you can imagine uh, that makes our, our bodies move with as much efficiency as, as, as I can do. And then we go on to uh, kata training and we do sparring with kata. And then we do a lot of conditioning typically towards the end of our classes. Uh, and I could, and I, I strongly urge my students to do most of their conditioning on their own and be held accountable because every once in a while I will pull the plug on the conditioning and that's what we'll do for the, for the, the entire period of the class. And I don't want anybody oh. to be suffering or, or, mm. or too sore for, for not having done their own. Uh, I'm glad you've given me that heads up, Sensei, because I know, I know, when, I know when, the, uh, when my toilet, I can time my toilet break, uh, my bathroom break for exactly that. Whoa, Sensei's doing conditioning. Oh, I've got to use the bathroom so badly. <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay. So we've talked a lot about your history and your motivation, Sensei. To people out there who are listening to you talk, and one of the things that I'm getting really inspired by is just your, your belief that martial arts happens anywhere and everywhere. Um, as this training, um, I'm very, I'm, I'm a big fan of Ido Portal, um, his and the Zoom movement and just moving in a, in a, in a really, I'm um, adopting movements from nature and so on and so forth and moving in a really purposeful way. I love how you, how you, how you term that. Um, when it comes to those people who have getting to a certain point in their karate life or their judo life or their aikido or jiu-jitsu life and they're wondering why am I doing this to myself what would you say to those practitioners who kind of feel like well I'm kind of past it um, I'm going to the door draw I've got injuries I shouldn't be doing this but if their their motivation to go is, is a lessening and they're at a level where they're kind of going uh when I was 21, I used to be able to do this, no problem. How do, how do we maintain in our mind, for those of us who are 40 plus, um, how do we maintain that motivation and love of the art? I know, big question. Yeah. Well, I can tell you from personal, personal experience uh, that you, sometimes you have to change arts or change uh, teachers, the locations. There's something that makes it feel as though you're still able to gain uh, and not feel as though you're stifled or always coming back injured. Uh, one of my students who had a background in Goju Karate um, with Higano Sensei's group primarily uh, trained with me for several years. Um, he is, uh, he's in his 70s, mid-70s, uh, and he was uh, a Marine in the Vietnam War, Marine uh, aviator, navigator. Uh, and very serious martial artist, but he got to the point where he could no longer do knuckle push-ups or that's the strong karate training that uh, that particular style in dojo. And even my my instruction, uh, he was having difficulty with his balance and falling a lot. 
he's the one that went to find that Tai Chi instructor that I eventually introduced myself to. And now he does great Tai Chi, and he's been able to be motivated for the last 10 or 12 years in that particular discipline and mm -hmm. continues to improve as a result. Mm -hmm. And so I would suggest, to answer your question, that why am I doing this? Well, find that, that answer, the original answer that you might have had, um, the reason for doing what you do, and, and find another way of doing it. A way that is more suited to your point in life. Mm. Maybe maybe you're an empty nester like I am now. You know, my, my daughter, my oldest daughter is married, has her own child now, her own family. It's just Junko and I living in our, by ourselves. And, you know, I, our lives change as a result of all of that. So mm. I would say continue finding that way. And, you know, mm. the, the path is a long path. Mm. And we're all on there for a long while. So uh, mm. just take a different route. Mm. I like that, Sensei. I like that. You know, if you're, if you're not on the right road to the destination, change the road you're on to the destination. I like that. Gosh, I'm going to be using that later on since I'm totally going to steal that. I may edit that out of the skies. I may edit this out of this podcast and pretend it was mine. I'm totally going to plagiarize that. Um, and that takes courage, Sensei. You know, like I know for me, with your kobudo background as well, I've, I find for me with karate, as I'm getting a little bit older, I'm finding that certain kata suit my body type and my mentality and my kneecaps and my hips <laughs> um, and I, I really enjoy the practice of kudo. Um I love ball and side particularly um, they just sort of seems to be something which keeps me in the game I love the constant kind of discovering um, of uh, how to continue training so for you Sensei with kobudo where does kobudo sit in relation to your karate are they two different things are they same sides are they different sides of the same coin do they relate to each other how do you approach it well as you know when we started our training together a few, a few months ago and i'm very blessed by that by, by, by you know i say this to you many times i said to my students you know it was a, it was a great treasure to find you uh, and along with other <laughs> people you, on the internet I, and I don't, I don't mean that lightly mm. i don't say that lightly um for me uh, at this point in my, in my experience is a, a tool. It's like picking up a, a dumbbell and understanding how to make it uh, work for you to make yourself stronger. Uh, and so the Kobodo that I do right now, I don't know a lot of kata and I've gotten more than I probably mm. have ever did uh, learn, but um, I use it now to build my empty hand technique. And so the, the lessons that you've given me and that I want to continue getting from you are based on the fact that I want to use bow, side, and chalk, it doesn't matter what it is, mm. to uh, better understand how to move my body, condition mm. it for um, my martial arts technique in ways that just training martial arts with the hand wouldn't do. Mm. And a good example uh, that just happened yesterday, actually, a, a number of my students and I were invited to attend a class in Karate and Kobodo at uh, Matsubayashi Dojo, not too far from uh, where we live, uh, Sensei Pat Miguel, uh, who runs the Omini Karate Dojo in that, in that city. Just an incredable martial artist. Uchinanchu, uh, as we say in, in, the, in the Okinawan language, a, a true uh, Okinawan. Uh, he invited us there, and uh, he very much opened up the more of that interface between uh, why I do Kobodo, which is get stronger at your karate, understand how to move, uh, understand the balance, your weight distribution, all those aspects that sometimes just having empty hand training um, doesn't provide, at least mm. in my experience. Mm. Mm. So I'm just I'm just mulling over that I'm just mulling over that answer and seeing how I can again plagiarize it and use it at a class at a later date. It's fantastic, Sensei. <laughs> um, 
That is brilliant, Sensei. What, what a beautiful articulation of the place of Kubudo in relation to karate. Um, and I think that, as you've said, it really comes back to back to what I love about karate for me is that that moving with purpose. Uh, I love kata, and yet as a young man, I loved sparring, and I couldn't see the point of kata. Um, if you could look at the three, uh, I guess the stages of your karate sensei, how would you typify that young that young that I'm not going to say aggressive. I'll say energetic young Puerto Rican man to where you are now, what what would you say are the stages of your development and continuing development? Well, your first early stage is, is one that I'm sure you share and many others who are listening to this podcast, which is, I, I just want to kick some butt. I want to protect myself. I wanted to show that I wasn't that skinny little kid that you could mess around with. Mm. And there were a lot of opportunities mm. when we were growing up. You know, it's a different world now. Thankfully, my children never had to go through what we had mm. to do. But um, my, my brothers and my sister, we all, we all some, someone suffered from that. So that was the early stage. Mm. It's just to be able to show that, you know, you can't mess around with us. Mm. And then the second stage was I wanted to be uh, 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 like my teachers. I want to understand more about why they were still doing karate or kobudo or jiu-jitsu or tai chi. After many years of having, I, I assume, mastered it, mm. um, little did I know. Uh, so I wanted to be like them. And then I wanted to teach like them. And I wanted to be able to build this ongoing generation of, of teachers, and or at least people that benefit from the martial arts long after I'm, I'm gone, mm. and in ways that uh, maybe I never thought of. And that's that's already happened in, in my relatively young life. Mm. So uh, I think those three stages are important. I think that everybody has some semblance of those three stages if they stick around long enough. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the things that is an indicator, since you know they say so, you know that know the know the student by the teacher or the teacher by the student. I think it's the right way around. Um, and every time I've seen pictures of your students, um, they're always laughing. And it's, it worries me because they surely they should be standing there with staunch expressions on their face, um, with huge knuckles, uh, bleeding knuckles and, and ragged shins. Um, there seems to be way too much enjoyment. Um, I guess in, say, the kind of people that you attract to your dojo is an, an inaccurate an accurate um, indication of what you're teaching and the rightness of what you're teaching. Now, we're coming up to the 55-minute mark, Sensei, so I'm going to just ask you, just to have if you have any final thoughts. I mean, I think, for me, I want to keep going for another four hours. Um, excuse, that was a... That was a... Uh, that was a uh, <laughs> it was my computer going off, apologies. Um, so, Sensei, final thoughts. I mean, um, what does the future hold? What's the why of your karate? And what's your... If you, you're talking about legacy, Sensei, what is, what, is, what is a worthy legacy for you? So my, my immediate future is to continue getting good at what I'm doing now. I'm in an industry that I was very fortunate to get into, and the reason that I was able to be involved with the health and wellness industry is because of my physical conditioning background and doing martial arts for all those years. Mm. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't know how to do a push-up or use a machine or stretch. So, I, I want to, in the immediate future, I want to continue being better at what I'm doing, meet more people, affect more people in that in that way, and I get a chance to do that very well in a beautiful facility close to my home, where I have no commute at all, and of course in my home as well. Right? Mm. I also train people in both martial arts and in physical fitness and life coaching. Uh, the why of the karate is, uh, you know, it, it karate empty hand, empty, empty uh, everything. I, I want to be that, that vessel of being able to learn more and, and be able to 
digest what I can and, and hopefully get more of what I am able to accomplish as a result. Mm. So that's my karate, that's my foundation. Mm. You know, my, my, my wife has been supportive of me for 40 years now and, and uh, has never questioned any, any time that I've ever wanted to do anything in the martial arts. She just understands, even though she's not a martial artist, she understands. Mm. And uh, it's helped me you know, tremendously through a lot of difficult times mm. and a lot of successes. And then a legacy, that third point you asked about, you know, it's the only word that I really can come up with at the moment. Uh, there's probably better ways to, to describe it, but uh, if I were to say anything at all, it would be that uh, I want my life to be remembered not for who I am, but for what I was able to provide. Mm. And I think people will think kindly of, of people um, in, in that way, you know, instead mm. of just saying, oh, well, he was able to do all that. You know, you know it's, it's not what I did, it's, it's what I was able to give to other people to do. Mm. No, I love that sense. And that's a that's a beautiful thought. It's not what I can do. It's what I was able to encourage other people to do, and how they were able to see themselves. Thank you, Sensei, so much for taking the time. Um, it's been awesome. I've personally got so much out of this. I want to thank your students who have been really friendly to me too, and and um, to New Bob and Igor and uh, New Bob's lovely wife, and to all those. All those people that I've yet to meet, but all those people that I've met, um, and thank you so much, Sensei. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link to Sensei's Facebook page, if that's all right, Sensei, um, so you can actually see. You, you don't have to take my word for it. You can get online and, and um, um, see what Sensei does and his students. It's beautiful stuff, um, inspiring. And um, again, thank you, Sensei, so much for taking the time. I have that check for the $6.5 million that we promised that, you know, so that'll be coming. You know, that that's in the mail. Um, it's going to get there at any time. I, I can't guarantee, but, you know, at a certain point. But thank you so much, and um, all the best, Sensei. The final word. Oh, I've lost your audio, Sensei. Push your, turn your, turn your mute off, Sensei. You've got your mute on. You've got your mute, turn your, turn your volume up. There we go. Thank you very much, Sensei. So my final thoughts, thank you for allowing me that. Uh, I really do appreciate very much what you do, not just for me, but for all the people that uh, are being affected by you. I encourage you to keep doing it. Thanks, um, there, are, there are a few people that do it as well as you, and I'm very pleased, uh, privileged to be able to be one of those people that have been affected by it. So keep it up, please. No, thank you, Sensei. Take care. And I'm and thank you guys for listening. I'll put the link to Sensei's dojo so you can contact the the men of the hour in question. Um, have a nice Christmas. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Keep training, as Sensei said. It's not what you do; it's what you can encourage others to do.